All right, so we uh, continue in this study um, on just the, the concept, and I mentioned it just a moment ago, that in heaven God will reveal His mighty works in history to His redeemed, to the praise of His own glory and for the wonder and joy of His people. In other words, there will be, I think, a backward look at history when we're in heaven, and that God will uh, show us what He did, that honestly we don't know the one millionth part of what God has done, frankly, even in our own lives to redeem us, to protect us, to answer our prayers, to filter our temptations. Uh, meanwhile, there's not just you and me, but there's a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nations. God's doing millions of things in their lifespan as well. And so it creates a vast network of history that God is not going to throw away into the trash bin. But he actually wants us to know what he did. And we've been through 16 scriptural proofs uh, that we will remember in heaven, our earthly lives. And uh, we're going to dig into some more of that today. Let me give you a sense of the things we haven't covered yet on this topic. And we have one more week after this. So let me give you a quick flyover of things that have been on my mind. And then we'll look at three of those topics. Um, so today we're going to talk about rewards. We're going to uh, make a case uh, just for biblical rewards, what they are, why we should desire them, why we should try to have as many rewards as we possibly can have on Judgment Day, and frankly, why we should help our brothers and sisters to the same end, that we're not in competition with each other, but that we actually, as one body, are trying to help each other be as rich as possible on Judgment Day. And that those rewards, as I'm going to argue this morning, are uh, not just honor from God and all that, but also a capacity to enjoy God in heaven so that our heavenly experience will be dependent on, to some degree on our faithfulness and service now. So get busy, uh, work hard for the glory of God, and expand your experience of heaven. So we'll talk about that. Um, I'm also going to today talk about uh, the, uh, the grand plan of providence, the big picture. What God has done from the Alpha Day to the Omega Day, what He will have done by then when the Omega Day will have come, the final day of human history, when the whole story is done, everything God did from the beginning to the end, uh, that that is a plan so vast, so marvelous, so complex. There is no person on earth that understands it. Uh, we do not comprehend it. But that that will be the centerpiece of God's lesson in heaven. He will show us his sovereign control, his providential control over history, and what he did. Things we cannot know now. We're not permitted to know now, but that we will then. Um, uh, part of that will be God's sovereign control over rulers, tyrants, uh, people in position of power and how God does amazing things to control them, to minimize the damage or make specific damage that they intend turn out for good for those who love Him, and how God overrules all of those things. So those are uh, today's topics. Beyond that, um, things I don't know what we're going to do next week because we'll have like eight chapters to go through and I'll, uh, there's no way. So uh, I'm going to have to just pick and choose. Um, but one of, the things I, one of the things that got me into history, and frankly what everybody loves about history, uh, what we would call hero and heroine stories, uh, things that God did in specific times through people, uh, moments of courage, martyr stories, uh, you know, moments of great service by brothers and sisters in Christ over, over history, what God did um, to advance His kingdom through them. Some of those people are famous, uh, some of those people are obscure. 
and specifically on the issue of obscure heroes and heroines, how exciting will it be to find out brothers and sisters that did some things that nobody knows about, they never got written down, but to be able to study them and know those brothers and sisters and see the glory of God that was at work in their lives. So uh, surprising providences, twists of fate, things that are remarkable that God has done uh, to be able to have that revealed. Um, also want to talk about spiritual warfare the things that are in the invisible spiritual realms around us every moment of the day that we cannot see because honestly we can't handle the full disclosure of demons and angels and the warfare swirling around our heads at every moment. God's not chosen to give us that kind of detailed knowledge, but he has told us that every moment our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, and powers. And to be able to look back and see the way that God protected us, the way that God dispatched angels, the way that he put a bubble of protection around us, similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and protected us. He would not let us be tempted beyond what we could bear, but with the temptation made a way of escape and got us through, friends, he got us through. And, uh, you know, Revelation 12, that's where uh, Satan fell from heaven to earth and swept a third of the stars with his tail and threw them to the earth. And I think that was a backward look at what God, what, what happened, the warfare that happened in heaven where Satan lost his place and the angels fell with him. And that began the demonic reign that we've had to deal with ever since. And to be able to look back at that uh, will be one full chapter in my book. Um, uh, so many other things, like whatever happened to the wallet I lost seven years ago, whatever, where did that go? I mean, I looked everywhere, and to be able to, I don't know that that's going to be in heaven. I don't even know it's going to make it in the book. That's ridiculous. But, you know, I lose so many things, you know. I mean, what happened to, uh, who's the woman that, that flew and disappeared? No, and, yeah, whatever happened to Amelia Earhart? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, the mysteries, Bermuda Triangle stuff. I don't know. I'm not getting into all that. My book will lurch in a bad direction if I do something like that. But... Um, our sins and sufferings, and we, I'm going to spend time on this next week. I don't want to talk a lot about it today, but it's the most troubling aspect of my book. It's the thing that people have the biggest problem with, uh, that, that our sins would be rehearsed, recounted, renewed in some way. And there are so many verses that seem to imply they won't, that God uh, will throw our sins into the depths of the sea and remember them no more and all that. So there is a way that I've come to understand, first of all, how it must be that our sins must be told, uh, just like Saul of Tarsus' rebellion against Christ has to be told to see the glory of his conversion. You just can't enjoy it unless you really know who Saul was. Um, and the same thing that God has done to cover our sins, to, you know, and in the basis of that, apart from that memory, to some degree, we'll never be able to celebrate God's grace. If we have zero memory of our sins, how could it be? But what I believe is that we will remember, but there'll be no pain. There'll be no shame. There'll be no regrets. Just memory. Just this, the, the, the story needed to display the grace of God. And so uh, part of that will come from Romans 7, and where we'll be able to say, it's just not, that's not me who did that. I've become a new person. And in glorification, that will be completely consummated. Paul says it in Romans 7, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. And so that, that Grand Canyon division between us and our sins will be complete and perfected in heaven. That wasn't us. The person that I am in heaven would never do any of those things. But we're able to look at it and say, yet it is um, what God did to me and through me, the grace of God. So we'll talk about that. Also, our sufferings. The fact that there is this kind of a therapeutic uh, forgetting that happens in this world so that you can go on with your life. There are tragedies that happen that are so wrenching and so difficult that if you immersed yourself in them every day, you'd be paralyzed. Uh, but you'll be beyond all that. 
in heaven. And you'll, you'll be able to see how God actually used great tragedy to advance his kingdom. The alternative, again, I think is bizarre, that it was all forgotten and nothing ever came from it and we don't know it. We just are on into a big happy world. I just don't see it. Instead, God uh, is able to bring light out of darkness and we'll be able to look at that. Um, and then also... Um, uh, other so other topics. I don't I don't know that we'll be able to get to all of those. I'll probably finish up with an exhortation based on today's teaching on rewards to spend your life storing up treasure in heaven. So that'll be next week. And now I've already used up some minutes for today. But what, what can I do? So let's dig in and let's talk about the doctrine of rewards. When we come to Christian rewards, the idea of rewards, I find that many Christians are a little bit strange about this topic. Uh, to some degree, they act like, well, I don't, I don't want anything for Jesus, serving Jesus. I, I'm, it's enough that, that God forgave my sins. And so they're, they're trying to be somewhat altruistic toward Jesus, saying, I know you said something about rewards, but I don't, I don't really want them. I just want to serve God, you know. And it's like trying to be noble in some way that really isn't, uh, I think, what we should do. If the Lord wants to reward you, I don't know how to say this. You should let him. <laughs> okay. And not only should you let him reward, but you should want what he wants to give you. You should actually yearn for the rewards. You should unashamedly say, I want to be as rewarded as possible on judgment day. Because the Lord's not going to do anything amiss. He's not going to flatter you. He is going to reward based on the things that he has taught. And so, first and foremost, we have to establish that there is a clear New Testament doctrine of rewards given to, uh, for faithful service to the Lord. It's again and again in Scripture. Could someone read for us Matthew 5, 11 and 12? So verse 12 gives you a straight command right away. First word in verse 12 is what? Rejoice. You're commanded by Jesus to rejoice. If you meet the criteria of verse 11, all right, which is that you're persecuted, insulted, that people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Christ. If you meet that criteria, he says, I'm giving you a command, rejoice. Then here's the basis of your joy. Why should you rejoice in verse 12? Because you're getting a reward. So does that mean we should want the reward? I think so. <laughs> you should want it. And you should be happy you're getting it. And will you get it in this life? No. So that will just bring you into Colossians 3. You're setting your hearts on things above and things to come. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you get your reward. So you're setting your mind on things to come. At the resurrection of the righteous, Paul says, in, or Jesus says in another place, don't invite all the people that can invite you back to their homes, but invite the people who can't repay you because uh, the poor, the needy, and all that, because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's reward language. So here, though, he's saying definitely you should rejoice that you have great reward. So that's really all we need, isn't it? Rewards are real. We should set our hearts on them. We should want them. They should make us happy, the fact that a reward is coming. Then he goes on in depth in Matthew 6, 1 through 21, in depth, basically teaching us about rewards and how we will not lose our rewards and how we can be protected concerning rewards so that our investment will not be stolen. So he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus is zealous that that not happen to you. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the street corners so that everyone may see them and praise them. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your giving may be done in secret. 
And here's the next part. And your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So again, Jesus wants you to know this is how the rewards work, and you should want them. And you should behave in a certain way that you'll get them. He does the same thing with uh, prayer. When you pray, don't go on the, on the street corners and pray so that everybody can see you. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your fathers unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he does the same thing with fasting. And when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces to show people they're fasting. I'm so hungry today. Why are you hungry? Well, I'm fasting. Since you asked, you know, don't do that. Um, but when you fast, look good. Don't look like you're fasting. Do whatever you need to do so that no one will know. And your father who sees what is done in the secret will reward you. He says it three times. Then, after giving those three case studies, he does something that people frequently, I think, go off in, a, in the wrong direction. I think he's talking about money. And I think in part he's talking about money. But he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, nor thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, it is true that he talks about money there, and no one can serve two masters. It is true. But I think the bigger picture on the 21 verses in Matthew 6 is about rewards. Don't set your heart on earthly, horizontal blessings that come your way. Don't set your heart on that. Set your heart on the future. Set your heart on heaven. Set your heart on treasure. Now, the key thing is you can store up treasure in heaven. Store it up. Accumulate it. Now, here we have to get super theological. We need to realize that we Protestants, we Christians, have come to understand that justification righteousness is not accumulated for us little by little on the basis of works. The righteousness by which our sins are forgiven, the righteousness by which we stand pure before God on Judgment Day, comes all at once as a gift based not on your works but on Jesus' works. A whole lifetime of obedience to God the Father under the law of Moses, culminating in his submissive obedience to his Father by going to the death on the cross, where he is your substitute and mine, and all of the wrath we deserve for violating God's law was put on him, and then his righteousness given to us as a gift. Perfect righteousness. In that righteousness, we stand forever. Now, for the rest of our lives, on Judgment Day, on into eternity. It's imputed righteousness, justification righteousness. You don't accumulate that by works. It's just given you wholesale as a gift. Wired to your account. Infinite righteousness. This is talking about something else. This is talking about good deeds you do after you've been justified. And it has to be after you're justified because before you're justified, you don't have any good works. Because anything that's not done from faith is sin. So no non-Christians have any good works ever. But once you've come to faith in Christ and the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you, you can begin your heavenly bank account. You can start storing up. And you do it by Ephesians 2.10, being God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God laid out ahead of you and, and prepared for you ahead of time that you should walk in them. And every day that you walk in them, every time you do one of them, he will not forget and will reward you. So what I'm saying is you should want to do as many of those good works as the Father has prepared for you as you possibly can. You want to store up as much treasure in heaven as you possibly can. So 
if you, if you just go generally to the topic of rewards, I would bring you to Matthew 5, 11, and 12, and then Matthew 6, 1 through 21, and it just says rewards, rewards, rewards. It just, there's no doubt about it. Jesus is teaching rewards, and the Father will do it. All right, so fundamentally, we should desire rewards. Paul uses different language. He speaks of crowns uh, that come. Uh, for example, he links it to his church planting. In 1 Thessalonians, he says there, What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. You, Thessalonians, the church that I planted, after Paul got chased, Paul and Silas got chased out of Philippi, they went to Thessalonica, and they planted a church there. Then they got chased from that place and went to the next place and planted a church there. And uh, so Paul <coughs> is concerned that the church uh, maybe is swept away by satanic opposition and persecution. Finds out from Timothy the church is still flourishing. It's rooted and grounded and growing, and he's excited, and he writes First Thessalonians. And one of the things he says there is, I want you to know just how happy I am that you still exist as a local church. And then he says these words, you are my crown. In other words, I'm going to wear you when Jesus appears. So that crown is something clearly from other verses the Lord gives to you. It's not something you put on your own head like Napoleon did, grabbing the crown out of the archbishop's hand, putting on his own head. All right, we're not doing that. It's not uh, a, a usurping kind of thing. It's something God gives us. And then uh, he puts it on, the crown of other people's lives that were affected by Paul's preaching ministry. Uh, does the same thing with the Philippians. The Philippians, he calls them their, his crown. 1 Corinthians 9, um, which is the next 1 Corinthians passage I'll preach on in three weeks, um, that just has to do with running a race. And then when you run a race, you, you have to follow the rules and you have to be disciplined. And they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So again, there's all this crown, the crown language. All right, so just we've established the idea of, of, of good deeds that receive a return from God, rewards. Now let's find out what they are. What is the reward? And the fundamental concept is given for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Could someone read that for us? So those three words sum it up. Now there's other aspects, and I want to talk more about the other aspects, but let's keep it right down the center. The essence of the reward is praise from God. Praise from God. It's not praise for God. We will do that forever. We will praise God forever. And frankly, we will have every good reason to praise God for our rewards. We'll talk about that in a moment. There's nothing except what comes from God. God gets the glory for everything. But the essence of the reward given to a servant, a son or daughter of God, is his praise for you. That he expresses to you in some way that he is pleased with you. So the, uh, this idea of praise from God is taught in many scriptures, not just in one place. For example, Romans 2.29 talks about the, the Jew who has a circumcised heart, not just physically circumcised, but is transformed by the Spirit. He says, such a person's praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, <clears throat> all he cares about is, is not making the circumcision party happy or the, the Judaizers happy. What he cares about is, is God pleased with me? That man, he says, is a true Jew. That's Romans chapter 2. And then Jesus speaks to his enemies in John 5, 44. He says, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? So again, Jesus is commending the idea, you should be living that God would praise you, not that other people praise you. It's really the same thing he taught in Matthew 6. Don't labor that other people notice you and praise you. 
care only about this, that God is pleased with you. Again, this is probably the most famous. Someone read this for us, if you would, Matthew 25, 21. Okay, we'll return to that verse again, um, but that's probably the best known, but people don't necessarily think it through that that is the essence of praise from God. Well done, good and faithful servant, that God is pleased with you. For most of my Christian life, before I really thought about heavenly rewards and all that, I thought it was just something God said to you on Judgment Day and never said again. I told you that one time I was happy. If I ever lose that happiness, I'll, I'll tell you. No, the idea is that forever he would express pleasure in the good deed. See, I really believe these memories will never fade, that, that the good deed will be good forever, forever, and that God will never tire of expressing pleasure about what you did. So that makes it pretty awesome if you think about God forever expressing pleasure, and you think about what's going on. He is your father. He's a good father. And, and any good father notes the efforts that their children make, honest efforts to please them, and a good father will commend them. And a good child of a good father will desire to please his or her father. As it says very plainly in Ephesians, find out what pleases the Lord. So the idea is we would try to please him. And then he, for his part, will speak that pleasure back to us after Judgment Day, on Judgment Day and after Judgment Day. That's the reward, that he expresses pleasure in the good deed to you forever. So for you then to say, well, I don't want the reward, it's like, that's foolish. You should say, I want God to be as pleased with my life as possible every moment of my life, and therefore I will live to please him, and I know he will express that pleasure to me. Now, one of the things he does is interesting. Giving you the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, as a deposit guaranteeing your future inheritance, he will give you some of that sense now. So that through a good conscience, through a sense through the Holy Spirit that God is pleased with your good deed, he will give you a little bit of a stipend check out of your billion dollars worth of inheritance. And you can have a sense, a feedback loop of pleasure. Not comprehensive, not every good thing you do, but just enough that you know God is pleased with the way you're living, the way you're serving him, the things you're doing. And that's really pretty sweet to have that sense. And so the idea then is praise from God. Now, what we have to do also beyond that is a sense of honor. John 12, 26, it says, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. Now listen to this. This is so beautiful. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Isn't that incredible? To be honored by God. To have God lay some honor on you because you served Christ. You followed him and served him. Well, beyond this, there's a horizontal aspect too. And this is so beautiful. The more you meditate on this, you will be set free from you, set free from sin nature, and you will honor brothers and sisters who served your Lord, who served your Heavenly Father. You will honor them proportionally to what they deserve. You will honor the heroes and heroines that lived lives to the glory of God. You get a little sense of that in Philippians chapter 2 when it talks about Epaphroditus, who is a servant that the Paul, um, that was a messenger from the church of Philippi. He says, welcome Epaphroditus in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. So that will be not forgotten, but consummated in heaven. Honor Epaphroditus for how he served Christ. We'll just multiply that by a number greater than anyone could count, and you'll be spending a lot of time honoring other people. And people will be honoring you in proportion to the way you serve. 
So again, all of this is intrinsic in, in heavenly rewards, the idea of honors uh, that come based on a life of service to Christ. Now, here we must say, and I know it should be burning in your heart, now, please, please, please say that God gets the glory for our honors. Yes, it's not disconnected. All of the honor you get, you will and should immediately give up to God. Immediately. Let's be honest. We're all sinners saved by grace. We don't deserve anything but hell. We don't deserve rewards. We don't deserve honors and crowns and any of that. We deserve condemnation. And we will have a strong sense of that with no sorrow or regret or bitterness. All of that's over after Judgment Day. But we'll know that we were saved by grace. We'll be so humble about that. We'll recognize that, that we even lived a moment after our first volitional sin, the first time we violated our conscience, broke the inner law of God in our heart, the first time we deserved to be condemned at that moment, to die eternally. But we didn't. And God covered it with grace and gave us time and then saved us at the right time, brought us from death to life, and then started laying out good works for you to do. And now he's rewarding you for them. Do you not see how gracious that is? That God has delivered you from wasting your life? Wasting your life on things that don't matter, that are wood, hay, and straw. Wasting your life on things that have no eternal consequence. He has delivered you from that and has given you things to do of eternal consequence. How great is God's grace to us. So Jesus put it pretty plainly when he said in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you'll bear much fruit. Why? For apart from me, you can do nothing. So that means everything you did that was good, you did because Jesus flowed through you by the Holy Spirit. He worked it in you. He transformed you. He gave you the ability to do that good work. Again, John 3, 20 and 21, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Those are unbelievers. They don't want a light shining on their lives. But everyone who lives by the truth comes into the light. Why? So that it may be seen plainly that what he did has been done through God. I want you to see that my works were done by God. So your zeal at that moment is for God's glory. You want your crown and your honor and your medals or whatever other emblems. You want everyone to know God did this through you. To God be the glory. It's just like it says of Jesus that the Father gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's the next part? To the glory of God the Father. If even Jesus gives all of his glory to God the Father, then so will you. And so every good thing that you ever got, you got it through the grace of God. And you'll be able to give him credit. Again, Isaiah 26, 12 says, Lord, you established peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. That says it all, doesn't it? Every good thing that we ever did, God did it in me. Uh, again, Hebrews 13, 21. May God equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in you what is pleasing to him. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? May God work in you what he is pleased with, and then he'll tell you he was pleased with you. <laughs> That's amazing. So he worked it in you, and then he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> and we're going to say, oh God, you're the one that did it. To God be the glory. Again, we have this image of casting crowns. One uh, Christian group took their name from this. Someone read this, uh, Revelation 4, 10, 11. Yeah, I cut off, thank you, I cut off that verse a little bit before I should have. Basically, there's a whenever sense here. Whenever they do this, whenever they, you know, so this is a repeated action. It's not just a once for all action. So here's the idea. The crowns are theirs to cast. The 24 elders, it's their, their crowns. They can do what they want with them. And what they want to do is cast them before Jesus and do it again and again and again and again. So there's that sense of eternal kind of repetition where again and again they give to Jesus, they give to the throne credit for their own crowns. 
There's no competition here. The, the, the rulers will not be in competition with Jesus, but he will truly be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in heaven, and they know it. Um, again, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. So that's the ultimate goal even now. When you do good works, you should, your desire would be that God would be glorified. All right. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, I want to expand it a little bit more. Another aspect of rewards, I think, is increased capacity to know God in heaven. Now, here it gets a little dicey because we tend to be pretty egalitarian on this sort of thing and think that every single person in heaven will know God equally well. So maybe I'm skating on thin ice, but I just don't think it's so. I think everybody will know God as much as they desire and everybody will be completely filled with God, but some will just have greater capacity. Yeah, Stephanie, go ahead. Right, it just comes down to your motive, and so we have to take our hearts and just know that our motives are frequently corrupt. All right, so we're gonna want to be honored and, and praised in a very unhealthy way. I mean, the ultimate uh, display of this by any creature ever is Satan, who says to Jesus, the Son of God, fall, fall down and worship me. That's disgusting that a creature would say that to the Creator. I want you on your face before me, worshiping me. We're like, well, I'm not like that. Yes, you are, and so am I. That's, that's what it's, it's like to be in Satan's kingdom. We take on the image of our Father, but, but the Lord brought us out of that dark kingdom, and now our Father is the Heavenly Father, and we want to give Him the glory. So that's what I would say. Our desire should always be that God will be glorified in our good works. Um, but we've got to be careful. We still have a sin nature. And that sin nature will want to trumpet our good works. Hey, you know what I did? Over the, you know, the, what is it, the humble brag, you know, or virtue signaling, or some of these other things we do to let people know what good people we are. Don't do that. Um, but on the other side, we're tempted to hide our light under a bushel basket when we should be shining it, especially at some courageous moments where we need to speak up in ways that, that take courage. And we know it's not going to be popular. So that's how I would put the two together. It, it, we're helped by the fact that they're in the same sermon and a few verses apart. So Jesus clearly knows that there's a difference, but, but we put them side by side. By the way, I just want to say that's a really helpful thing to do in Bible interpretation. Take a Bible passage that seems to contradict another, put them together and think about them until they don't contradict anymore. It's just really, really good to build a theology that way. Don't throw one of them out or the other one out. Put them together and say, how could these both be true? All right, let's keep going. All right, God in heaven, God is the reward. The crowns aren't the reward. The pearly gates aren't even the reward. God himself is what we get in heaven. Everything else is like flowing from that. So it says in, in Genesis 15:1, after Abram refused all of the, the plunder from defeating the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and all that sort of stuff, and there's all this booty, and he doesn't want it. He walks away. He said, I don't want the king of Sodom and Gomorrah saying he made Abraham rich. So he walks away, and then God comes to him and says, Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. So I'm what you're going to get, better than silver and gold. I'm the reward. I am your reward. So, like, John Piper wrote, God is the gospel, God is the good news, God is the reward, he's what you get in heaven. Or as Jesus said in John 17, three, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what you get in heaven. When you're glorified, you get to know God. You get to know him forever. And this is what I would say, and what, what my book is all about is about details. It's about not forgetting the details. And so the rewards are about details, they're about a moment in time when somebody did something for God. And there's a uniqueness to that, and that would be repeated. 
And so the idea then would be, I want as much as possible to know God in, in my life, to know Him in that moment. And the moments matter. And so here's what I would say. Let's say you get a woman who can't get out much, but she's an unbelievable prayer warrior, you know, and she just has in her Bible so many, like, missionary um, cards and all that sort of stuff. And over the last, like, 17 years of her life, she prayed, I don't want to do the math, but lots of times. What I would say is she'll be rewarded for each and every one of them. And each one meant something to God. Each one, he doesn't forget anything. He's very detail-oriented in that regard. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. But it so won't there's, be stuff. It'll be him saying, well done, well done. It will be relational. So we're on the same, absolutely in the same wavelength. We are. And so fundamentally then, to see in the moment, God will reward me for this. So I want to do this today. Every day is unique. And God orchestrates circumstances that will never happen again. And they are unique. And what my book's about is that God doesn't lose that. It's that let's look back at that moment and see what that was like and see how powerful that was and that it will never be lost. But here's what I want to say. Let me just forge ahead here. That's a special moment shared between God and that person that other people know a little bit more from afar. So I can celebrate, Jay, I can celebrate your good works and will. I will look forward to celebrating your good works. But there's still something special about you and God about that good work. That was still your good work. And that's where I say that the 24 elders, their crowns are their own. They belong to them. And they get to cast them, but they belong to them. And so what I want to say then is that it's a shared moment between God and the servant. And that's a unique knowledge that they alone share and others look on from the outside. So what I want to say then is have as many shared moments as you can with your Heavenly Father. You are unique. I mean, we're all alike in that we're all human, created the image of God, and there's so many things that are common. But there are unique things too. People can't be replaced. Like when Job lost his ten children and then he had other children, they didn't replace the children he lost. Maybe I'm, you know, I'm not enough of an animal lover to say a sheep's a sheep. When you get 3,000 sheep in place of the other 3,000 sheep, they've been replaced. All right? You're like, oh, if only you loved dogs the way, you know, the way I did. You can't replace Rover and all that. I'm digressing, and I don't have time to digress. Just people are unique. And if people are unique, what's unique about them is their history is unique. Their moments are unique, the, et cetera. And, and God is celebrating that moment in time they could never be repeated again. And so it's finding God in it. So in the end, we end up in the same place, but I don't want to miss the detail. The book's about the details. And, and it's that that moment was special, and God will share it with you. So let's go back to Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. That's pretty provocative, but we'll talk about that another time. Actually, we won't. We have no time for that. But anyway, <laughs> enter into the joy of your master. Now meditate on that for a while. There is a big picture enter into the joy, such as come into heaven. Come into my heavenly world. So there's that, and that's fine. But then you could say, well, we're talking about well done, good and faithful servant. Let's keep to the topic. You were faithful in this. I now want to share with you my joy in your faithfulness, which I did not fully reveal when you did it, or even in the, in the weeks and months and years that followed it. But now I want you to enter into the joy that I felt and I had when you did that good work. It's a shared experience. And so that is 
somewhat exclusive, though we are all part of the body of Christ and we can share it, it's still theirs. I will not be able to say that I stood up for the gospel at the Diet of Worms at the, at the risk of my life. I didn't do that. Martin Luther did that. And so he cut a swath of freedom for thousands of people behind him because he was willing to stand up and, and risk his life. He was sure he was going to be killed. So to be able to stand up at that moment and do that, you know, I didn't, I didn't do what Amy Carmichael did. I didn't do what Elizabeth Elliot did. That's, those are her, they are her rewards, those women. But I, I can enjoy it, and I'm not jealous of it, and she's part of the body of Christ. That I'm, and so when one part is honored, the whole body is honored. But there's still a special, unique father-to-daughter or father-to-son relationship that's really pretty special and precious. And so what I want to say is expand your heavenly experience by going and doing those good works. Go do them. Go win the prize. Go out and live for the glory of God. Go store up treasure. Because it's all about you and God. It's about a relationship with God. It's about knowing God in that way that you will want to do. Uh, so a shared experience. Again, Luke 6.38, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. And listen to this. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So use a big measure. <laughs> Isn't that what Jesus is getting at? Be really, really generous with your time, energy, money. Be generous with your spiritual gifts because if you use a, a, a stingy measure, you'll get a smaller measure of reward, a smaller measure to some degree of heaven. Now keep in mind, I am not minimizing you know, what the thief on the cross is enjoying. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. With me. So he has a relationship, though he has, I think, pretty close to zero good works. I mean, really, come on. How many good works did the thief on the cross earn in his last 11 minutes of life? Not much. Can't compare him to those that serve for decades and decades, faithfully serving, like Adoniram Judson, Nancy Judson, et cetera. They just suffered more, they lived longer, et cetera. But you remember the parable of the workers in the field who worked, some worked all day, and some guy gets hired 10 minutes before closing, get the same denarius? Like, wait, what? I mean, there's a sense of outrage. But there's no outrage. We want the thief on the cross to be in heaven, don't we? We're glad he's there. But it's just different. He doesn't have any rewards. Very few. Uh, others have a whole bunch of rewards. So, heaven will be wonderful no matter how many rewards you have. But there's this idea of capacity. Capacity to enjoy God. This is what Jonathan Edwards wrote in Heaven is a World of Love. Not the least remainder of any principle of envy shall exist to be exercised toward angels or other beings who are superior in glory. That's an ex just a very provocative phrase. Superior in glory. It's like, wait, I thought we were all equal. No. <laughs> some star differs from star in glory. Some are brighter than others. Some are bigger than others. It's just the way it is. And not only that, the more you meditate, if you know church history, you just know some people just laid it out on the line more than we did. They just did. They served for years and suffered for years. And they should be honored more than me. There's just a rightness to it, and I won't be jealous. And the more you can get there now here on earth, the better it'll be for you. You're just not jealous or envious. You just honor people who deserve to be honored. Nor should there be aught like contempt or slighting of those who are inferiors. Those that have a lower station in glory than others suffer no diminution of their own happiness by seeing others above them in glory. On the contrary, all the members of that blessed society rejoice in each other's happiness, for the love of benevolence is perfect in them all. The saints that are highest in glory will be the lowest in humbleness of mind, for their superior humility is part of their superior holiness. 
uh, though all are perfectly free from pride, yet as some will have greater degrees of divine knowledge than others, pause, some will have greater degrees of divine knowledge than others. Now, this is Edwards, not Scripture. But is it possible? Now, here's, here's the thing I, I want to say. We're never, none of us ever going to be omniscient. You'll never get to the end of God as a topic. Okay, I read that book. I need another book. That will never happen. So, all right, so that means everyone knows less of God than can be known. Everyone's like that. Then to argue for absolute equality, that everyone knows God exactly the same amount, is a bit odd and as much speculative as the alternative would be, that we don't all equally know God the same way. So just ponder it, chew on it, and if you think, no, I think I'm still going to go for the egalitarian heaven, do that. That's fine. Brenda, go ahead. Absolutely. That's what Judgment Day is about. That's what gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw is all about. That's, I mean, you just have to perfectly trust Jesus the judge. He'll get it right. He'll get it right. He's going to evaluate every one of his servants properly. So um, let's just keep going. Uh, uh, some will have greater degrees of divine knowledge than others and larger capacities see more of the divine perfections. Larger capacities, you know, more just a bigger vessel. Think of it that way, a bigger vat in an ocean of God. God's infinite, but they're just bigger vessels than others. In larger capacities, see more divine perfection, so they will see more of their own comparative littleness and nothingness, and therefore will be lowest and most abased in humility. It's a remarkable statement. Basically, the more glorious you are in heaven, the more humble you'll be, because you'll be closer to God and you'll realize how nothing you are. There, I mean, this is why the seraphim in Isaiah 6 cover their faces. They are perfectly pure beings. They've always done exactly what God wanted them to do, and they're covering their faces. There's just a humility of knowing that they're creatures and God's the creator and there's an infinite gap between the two. Not because they're sinful, but because they're creatures. So there's that sense of humility. And besides, the inferior in glory will have no temptation to envy those that are higher than themselves. For those that are highest will not only be more loved by the lower for their higher holiness, but they will also have more of a spirit of love to others. And so will love those that are below them more than if their own capacity and elevation were less. They that are highest in degree of glory will be of the highest capacity, and so having the greatest knowledge will see most of God's loveliness and consequently will have love to God and love to the saints uh, most abounding in their hearts. All shall have as much love as they desire and as great manifestations of love as they can bear. And so all shall be fully satisfied. And where there is perfect satisfaction, there can be no reason for envy. So you're going to be at a feast and you'll eat until you're full. And some people will just have a bigger appetite than others. And that seems to be set. What Edwards is saying, it's set by the way you live your life now. So the more you live for the glory of God, the more you put sin to death now, the more you serve others now, the greater your capacity for heavenly experience. That seems to be what they're arguing. What's arguing. So the command for this is store up treasure in heaven. Store up God experiences in heaven. That's, that's how you should spend the rest of your life. All right, let's talk uh, about the grand plan revealed at last. There is an overarching plan for all of this. History has a purpose. There is a story going on here. When Jesus says uh, plainly, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, he's talking about history. He's talking about the story. I am the beginning of the story, and I'll be the end of the story. So there is this, this plan. The gospel itself was planned before the beginning of time. 
says in Ephesians 1, for he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which is freely given us in the one he loves. So before the creation of the world, he had this salvation plan. All of it worked out. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 says, we speak, of God, we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages for our glory. So God before the ages, before history, predestined this, this plan for our glory, for your glory, if you're a Christian. All right, again, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was, listen to this, given to us in Christ before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. So it was planned before time began, then it broke into time at a certain moment. So like when the person who led you to Christ led you to Christ, then you learned about it. But God had planned it before the world began. And again, Titus 1, 2, and 3, the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So there's a lot of verses about this. God had a plan that he had in his mind before the world began. All right, beyond that is this pattern of the plan in the hand. I love this. Somebody read Isaiah 14, 26, and 27 for us. I love that verse. This is the plan. This is the hand. <laughs> okay. So what does the hand refer to? This is anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have a body, a physical body, but we use this language all the time. The mouth of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord, etc. What does the hand of the Lord refer to here? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? His purpose. Okay. I would say his power to execute his plan. This is what I'm going to do, and now stop me from doing it. If you look at it, it's contentious. His hand is stretched out. He wants his hand stretched out. And who is able to turn it back contrary to his will? No one. So the idea here is of a perfectly wise plan and omnipotence to extend that plan. No one can stop it. The plan in the hand. And so that's God. He rules history. He rules over all things. Again, Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything conforming with the purpose of will. Everything? Like, yeah, everything. He knows that the universe is made up of atoms. He knows history is made up of microseconds. He knows better than we do the importance of details. He rules over even a sparrow falling to the ground and how many hairs you have on your head. He understands how important small moments are. And he's been running history. And that's actually incredibly comforting. I know it brings us into theological quandaries and difficulties on the problem of evil and suffering. I understand that. But the alternative is much worse, that there is no one flying the plane. You get to the cockpit and there's no pilot or co-pilot. I don't know why some people would think that's, that's more comforting than the idea of there is a pilot flying through this turbulence and electrical storm. I want a pilot flying through that. And the Bible says there is more than just a pilot. He orchestrated everything for the praise of his glory. So he works over all the details. Therefore, this plan <laughs> extends to the smallest and greatest details of human history. Acts 17.26, it says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Wow. Wow. So I like watching on YouTube the last 4,000 years of human history superimposed in color codes on a map. You're like, what a geek you are. What a history geek. Who could even watch it? But I find it fascinating to watch the Roman Empire grow and grow and grow and grow and reach its maximum and hang out there for a long time and then start shrinking as the Visigoths come in, et cetera. And then out of nowhere comes Genghis Khan and takes over a quarter of the earth and then disappears like a morning mist. 
like he's not even there. And they're like, at that speed, you want to get through the whole thing in five minutes. Genghis Khan didn't last long. And you start realizing, wow, this is massive, massive, that God has been orchestrating all of this. For what? For the praise of his glory and the salvation of his elect. And he's creating these empires, and they're rising and falling, and things are interacting, and there's wars and rumors of wars, and all this stuff's going on, and there's famines and earthquakes in various places, and all this is going on, and people are getting saved in every generation. It's pretty awesome. How much of it do you understand? Very little. <laughs> okay. How much does anybody understand? Very little. So we have a linear view of history. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. God planned, therefore, a sequence of events. First this, then that, and then the other. The entire sequence is more complex than we can possibly imagine. Skip the next section. I think this is kind of cool, but you can meditate. God is the great I was. I'm not saying he's a has-been. I'm just saying he just does what he did. All right? He is the I was. Anyway, move on. Um, <clears throat> God never changes. That's the point. The immutable God, what he was, he is. And so therefore, what he did in history shows not just what he was, but what he is, because he never changes. But those circumstances will never happen again. Does that make sense? They are unique. Those moments have passed. But God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so therefore, it is worth studying history. That's all, because he doesn't change. But those circumstances will never happen again. That's pretty awesome. Um, so the complexity of providence this is really cool. Go to Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments. And this is really cool, his paths beyond tracing out. I spent a lot of time on the Greek word that's translated there, paths beyond tracing out. It has to do with like a bloodhound tracking a prey or a hunter tracking an animal, or even you could think of a fugitive from justice being tracked or trailed by an avenger of blood, something like that. So there's a trail. What this verse is saying is you can't track God. You lose his trail in the complexity. You, you just can't figure out what he's doing. It's very, very difficult to trace him or track him out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Now, Ecclesiastes 3, and I'm not going to read all this, but you know that, that passage, the beautiful passage, there's a time for everything, a time to plant, a time to sow, a time for, to, to mourn, and a time to rejoice, a time for dancing, a time, you know, time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, etc. A time, a time, a time. A few verses later, he says this, Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. There's a place for all of that. All of that's part of God's plan. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What does that mean to you? They cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It's too complicated. We're talking about a multitude greater than anyone could count, and each one of those people lived maybe on average 70, 80, 90 years and had all kinds of experiences that got them to heaven. How long is it going to take to go through all that? <laughs> we just don't have even the first clue to some degree of the scope and magnitude of this incredible plan. I think this is the bulk of the curriculum of our heavenly history lesson. Let me show you what I did from beginning to end. Let me show it to you. Let me teach you. And you'll have, as I argued last time, increased capacity. No boredom, no ADD, no waiting for the class to finally get out so you can go out and play in the, you know, whatever. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, spiritual genealogy. It's, um, you know, one of the chapters that I 
had here, I skipped summarizing it, but it's um, of personal interest, our spiritual heritage. So, yeah, I mean, like, who's my spiritual great, 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 you know, who led so-and-so? There's got to be some famous people in there somewhere, you know. <laughs> Definitely, I like, I'm, like, through the Apostle Paul somewhere in there in <laughs> Corinth. I don't know. I don't know. So how cool is that? But just be able to find out the story. We that we will know. There's a lot to know. History is very complex. There's a lot of illustrations that I've used of this. Um, in my book on Christian contentment, I used the Grand Complication Watch, which has 876 parts, each of them handmade. Each part handmade. You don't see 10% of those watches. They put a glass, a glass backing on it so you can see some of the movement. But you're paying $3.5 million for a watch. What is wrong with you? All right? <laughs> I tried it. I was thinking about like that or a really expensive sports car, like a Bugatti. Like, would I rather have a $3 million car or a $3 million watch? I settled on the watch because I would kill myself in the car. There's little <laughs> doubt in my mind. No way I'm getting insurance. Who's going to sell insurance to me to drive a $3 million race car? It's like 11 minutes in, you'll crack it up. And I'm not paying. We're not paying for that. All right. So I can't get insurance, et cetera. But the fact is, in that grand complication watch done by Langenson, there are 876 handmade parts. Craftsmen made those gears and sprockets. Most of them you'll never see. What I'm arguing is that God wants to lift the gear out and hold it up with tweezers and have you look, on it and look at it and understand every spoke and understand just the beauty of the complexity of the plan behind that particular gear. And that's as nothing compared to history. People are complicated. The reasons why they do things are complicated. The effect of geopolitical empires rising and falling in economics is complicated. Why you came to Christ is complicated. And God is so much far, farther above our hearts than we can imagine. But he wants us to understand how great he was in saving us. How wise, how patient, how loving. So there's different illustrations. There's a tapestry illustration in which the thing looks weird on the back with all these knots and then beautiful cut, you know, on the front. Because I keep writing on this stuff, I have to keep coming up with new illustrations. This is vexing to me, all right? So the newest illustration is the Apollo 11, you know, landing on the moon. What do you think went into that? Well, I looked it up. Estimated 400,000 scientists, engineers, and technicians. 400,000 people, skilled people, working together as a team. 5.5 million individual parts on the rocket. 5.5 million. Hopefully, most of them worked right, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Just the complexity of landing a man on the moon and bringing him safely back to Earth, as JFK said in 1962. Um, I'm telling you, assembling the church from every tribe, language, people, and nation is more complicated than that, vastly more complicated. So it's just incredible that we would actually be able to study all these things. All right, let me finish with J.I. Packer's York signal box thing, and then William Cooper. Oh, I want to do him, too. Danny Aiken's preaching today. I get to introduce him. I should be there when he preaches, don't you think? <laughs> Tom, I should be there. All right, it'd be a good idea for me to introduce him and be there when he preaches. Let me just say a couple things. Uh, let me summarize. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God. It's one of the best theology books ever. It's a great intro to, to good sound theology. Excellent book. And one of the chapters is God's wisdom and ours. There he argues against a certain view of, of wisdom where you think you're going to be invited up into the control box, the signal box of the York train station, where you'll get to see on a panel every train that comes in and out of the station, why that one's being paused for an additional three minutes so that this train can come in, et cetera. God isn't going to do that for you. He's not going to invite you up into the heavenly signal box 
J.I. Packer argues. Instead, what you need to learn to do is to trust the character of God in your life. Some things are going to happen that you will not really understand, and God's not going to give you an explanation. There is no evidence that God ever explained to Job what happened to him. He never came down and said, I want you to know that Satan and I were talking about you, and uh, et cetera. That never happened. He just basically did a lot of, where were you when I made the world? <laughs> okay. But he doesn't tell him specifically. But he didn't need to know it was enough. But here's the point. Here's what I want to ask. Look, if you look at the final statement, go on the handout that says final statement. Thus the effect of his gift of wisdom is to make us more humble, more joyful, more godly, more quick-sighted as to his will, more resolute in the doing of it, and less troubled, not less sensitive, but less bewildered than we were at the dark and painful things of which our life in this fallen world is full. The New Testament tells us that the fruit of wisdom is Christ-likeness, peace and humility and love, and the root of it is faith in Christ as the manifested wisdom of God. Let us see to it then that our own quest for wisdom takes the form of a quest for these things. Not, not, what he's saying, not a, a specific explanation from God of why your child got sick and died. He's not, going to he's not going to do that. All right, that's what he's arguing for. And that we do not frustrate the wise purpose of God by neglecting faith and faithfulness in order to pursue a kind of knowledge, look at this, which in this world it is not given to us to have. And then he went on to the next chapter. So my job is to say, whoa, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Will it be God's purpose in the next world to give us the York signal box look? And I think he's implying it will be. So William Cooper wrote uh, many hymns. He wrote a hymn entitled, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, a beautiful um, hymn. But one of them is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I'll read this and we'll be done. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright de designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now listen to the final stanza. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Obviously, in the spirit of my book, my question is, when? When will he make it plain? Before you die? No promise for that. But I think after you die, he'll make it plain why everything that happened in your life happened the way it did. And not just your life, but the life of a multitude greater than any could count from a tri-language people in the nation. All right, we got through literally half of my handout today. <clears throat> Jay, would you be willing to close this brother in prayer?